Thank you for selecting this message by Dr. James Hoffman. Dr. Hoffman preaches verse by verse through the entire book of the Bible. From all of us at Living Water of Lapine here in Central Oregon, we hope that it will encourage you and feed you spiritually. And if you would like to leave a message after the sermon, our contact information is found on the sermon page where you found this sermon. Now may God richly bless you as you listen. In a novel by British mystery author P.D. James, he has one of his characters, a detective, share a sentiment that many people have. The detective in this novel says, I don't go for all this emphasis on sin, suffering, and judgment. If I had a God, I'd like him to be intelligent, cheerful, and amusing. Now, involved in this conversation is a different character in the novel. Uh, she's also a detective, and she happens to be Jewish. She replied, I doubt whether you would find him much of a comfort when they herded you into the gas chambers. You might prefer a god of vengeance. Dr. J. Todd Billings, a reformed theologian at Western Theological Seminary here in Oregon. No, not the one in Portland, the one that I attended. This one, I think, is in Salem. Uh, he's a theologian there, and I'd like for you to listen to his comments after his own sighting of what I just read. Here's what he says. A God without wrath is a God who whitewashes evil and is deaf to the cries of the powerless. A student of mine who grew up in a gang culture and had many whom he loved taken from him by violence told me with profound honesty that if God will not avenge, I am tempted to avenge. Precisely because God is a God of love, he is also a God of of holy wrath. <clears throat> Have you ever thought that if God is a God of love, that he must also have a sense of wrath? <clears throat> Listen, if he truly loves, he must also manifest justice. How can a loving God Turn away and ignore injustice. God loves you, and he will administer a proper sense of justice against all who seek to do you harm. 
We don't need to take our own vengeance. Christian believer, do you have the right thinking about God? You see, most of us, when describing God, generally err on the side of either mercy or justice. But it's not just us. We're going to pause just a moment and pray right now for Anne, who is going through a situation here uh, in our body. Would you join me as we pray for her? Father, we don't know what has affected Anne, but we know that she is in great discomfort right now. And we ask that you would touch her, that you would help her through this situation that she is suffering right now. God, please deliver her from this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Believer, do you have right thinking about God? Because we do. We generally err on the side of either mercy or justice, and it's not just us who are doing that. Those inside the church and those outside of it have this tendency to err one side or the other. We either emphasize God's loving kindness to the exclusion of his anger towards sin, or we depict him as only vengeful to the exclusion of mercy. Now, in the evangelical circles that I run in, I am reading more and more articles and blogs that tell me how unpopular preaching about hell is today. Many churches seem to exclude it altogether. I'm not going to follow suit today. If I did, I'd have to skip over this next section that we come to in our study through the Gospel of Luke. Our passage today is going to demonstrate that in truth, God's anger is filled with grace. But his mercy has limits. He has provided a means of salvation that is open to all and is completely free. Yet consequences of sin remain a real danger to those who do not receive this free gift. Jesus will mention a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is nothing less than eternal torment. It's a place that is eternally separated from God's mercy. Then he will contrast that with the kingdom of God, depicting it as a place of feasting with a vast array of people from every place on this globe, from all walks of life, and from every era of history since the beginning of time. I believe that our time here on earth is very short because Jesus is about to return. Amen. 
And the door of that banquet is about to shut forever. You and I simply must get it right. There is an urgency for us to understand basic truths about God and his gospel. And that even means that we have got to withstand our culture's attempts to have us believe different than what the Bible teaches. Oh, do you really believe in hell? A literal place? Well, we're about to see that Jesus did. The narrative that Luke takes us to in today's passage took place in the final months of Jesus' life on earth with his disciples. His time was short as he traveled on his way to Jerusalem for the final time. His focus was on teaching and preparing his disciples for ministry without his physical presence any longer. Dr. Luke included this gospel narrative as one of the important teachings of Christ as he made his way to the cross to die for us. It wasn't just important for his disciples. How much more do you and I need it as we see the limit of God's grace by coming to a close? So we begin today in Luke chapter 13 with verses 22 and 23. Here's how it reads. He went on his way through towns and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Was the question sincere? Why was this asked? One Bible commentator suggested that the questioner must have noticed the falling away of many of Jesus' followers as the Lord's ministry became increasingly confrontational and controversial. Luke has presented several of these conflicts between Jesus and the religious establishment. The risk of following Jesus must have seemed more dangerous with this growing number of disputes with the religious authorities. One or two other commentators add that seeing disappointing results had caused some of Jesus' followers to be somewhat discouraged. They were not seeing Jesus' message sweep across the nation as they thought it would. This would then prompt their question. Just how successful is this kingdom enterprise that we have committed ourselves to? Was it always supposed to be 
just us few? Now it's possible that the question came from such discouragement. Sincere, even though disheartened. But I think it's even more likely that this question was not a sincere question. And I think that for two reasons. I I think this question was rather smug. I think it was a self-complacent question. And I think that for these two reasons, number one, because of the way Jesus responded to it, and also because of what the common thinking in Israel was. The common thinking, of course, was that Jews, all Jews, except the very worst, were going to be saved. The Mishnah says this. This is what influenced their thinking. All Israelites have a share in the world to come, for it is written, Thy people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. And these are they that have no share in the world to come. He says, or he that says that there is no resurrection of the dead prescribed in the law. And he that says that the law is not from heaven and an Epicurean. (laughs) That's Greek. (laughs) Wow. So when the question rang from the crowd, the hearers expected Jesus to affirm that all Jews would make it through the pearly gates unless they had committed especially grievous sins like the Old Testament rebellion of Korah or the sin of Absalom. They also thought that all Gentiles would be excluded from the kingdom, except for a few proselytes who followed the example of Rahab and Ruth, looking at the things Jesus says in his answer shows that Jesus was confronting a presumptive arrogance The question was seeking to solidify Jewish feelings of religious superiority. Several parts of the answer that Jesus gave demolishes Jewish feelings of preeminence. He speaks of the Gentiles coming from all corners of the earth to this heavenly banquet. We're going to see that here. And we're also going to see that he points out many Jews are going to be left out from that. And further, he speaks of their Jewish snobbiness saying, you know, the first will be last and the last will be first. Well, look how even the first part of Jesus' answer must have sent shivers and shockwaves through his listeners' hearts. It would have been a complete stunner. They would have been stunned. Their attitude of Jewish preeminence here. Verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. 
For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Jesus' words assaulted their wrongful contentment. Many of you Jews will try to enter and will not be able to. Many, not some, implying that a majority of those listening to Jesus' reply would not make it. The Jews' smug attitude of superiority had most certainly drawn a stinging slap. Their faces must have turned pale with their blood being flushed away. However, if the truth be told, some of you listening to me right now might be a little uncomfortable with this answer that Jesus gave. Strive to enter? Jesus' word choice, strive. Make every effort. That's the Greek word agonizai. That's where we get our English word agony. The uh, Apostle Paul used the same word in describing the demands made of an athlete competing in the Olympic Games. 1 Corinthians 9.25 There's nothing lackadaisical about this word. The athlete throws everything he has into the race to ensure that he wins. It pictures all of one's muscles bulging and straining, veins popping. And that's the picture every time that word is used. And Jesus seems to be saying that we cannot strive too much to obtain our salvation. It must be sought with all that we are, every ounce of our energy, agonize in order to enter the kingdom. Now, does that make any of you feel a little uncomfortable? As an evangelical Christian who has been taught that salvation is a free gift that we cannot earn, that no matter how much effort and self-sacrifice, it will never be enough, we will always fall short. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9? It says, for by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. So that no one may boast. So let me ask again. Does this statement that Jesus makes in Luke 1324 bother anyone at all? How does it reconcile with what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? Well, who was Jesus talking to? 
what is the context? What is he answering? He was addressing a very powerful, powerful attitude. Deeply ingrained. But a very wrong Jewish arrogance. Pride is a very difficult obstacle. And this audience would have to strive to overcome this attitude of their preeminence, their deserving, in order to manifest a saving faith. We are all saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. No one is saved by being a Jew, a Catholic, a Baptist, or by being born into or adopting any religious system. Very often, our striving to enter the kingdom of God is struggling against the things we have been taught in our upbringing in order to believe what the Bible teaches. Family or other important people in our life may have taught us that salvation is rightfully ours because of something other than what the Bible teaches. Believing the Bible rather than them is like betraying our heritage. That's not easy. That's a struggle. There may also be a struggle from knowing that if we do turn our backs on our upbringing, that we will be disowned by our family. Salvation certainly is an agonizing struggle in this way for so many, and I would suggest that was true of this audience that Jesus was speaking to. They faced horrible struggles, severe persecution, and many today face the same. Now, even for the rest of us who may not have to struggle with our family or with government authority, we still cannot simply believe without struggle. We struggle against pride. This is a constant struggle. We have to see that there is nothing in us that deserves salvation. God does not look on us and see some great potential for his kingdom that he just has to have. Wow, look at that guy or girl. Aren't they something? I can really use them for my kingdom. I'm going to save them. I read somewhere that today, this phrase that opens up the four spiritual laws that we used to share in Campus Crusade for Christ, the phrase that opens it says, um, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life, that today when that phrase is used, you can expect the listener, the modern day listener to think, well, of course he does. I'm a lovable person. <laughs> it's just the opposite. 
we struggle to really see ourselves the way God does and in need of salvation. And he saved us not because of anything in and of ourselves. And you know what else? Our salvation is, is dependent on our coming to him in utterly, utter humility. And we've got to continue that struggle. It's a constant struggle. You, you might have been a believer for many years, but let me tell you, you still are not worth saving in and of yourself. It's still a struggle. Think of the last time you tried to pray. and You had this niggling little thing, maybe in the back of your mind, that said, God, you owe me. Answer this prayer. We struggle. We do struggle. We're saved by faith. But there is a struggle that is involved in our saving. Many will seek to enter it and will not be able, Jesus says. Many are not saved because they want to enter it on their own terms instead of God's terms. Or they want to enter it on the basics of good works or that they will enter because God is love and he's going to accept everyone. He's not going to cast anyone out. Uh, some think they can buy their way into heaven. And Jesus says in Luke 13, 24, many who think they are going to heaven will not go when they die. Now, the important question is not, are there few or many that are saved? The important question is, are you saved? Many will be lost because of being late. They will not get serious about their salvation while the door is opened wide. They become serious too late. Verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. The Lord draws a very graphic picture here of multitudes who never bothered themselves much about their soul's salvation until the door was shut. And then it's too late. The time is now. The classic Bible illustration is found in the story of Noah's ark. Too long, Noah's neighbors laughed and scoffed. Too long, they sinned away the day of grace. And then suddenly the day came and the door was shut. Genesis chapter 7 gives us that account. Those who were shut in went through the judgment unscathed and those who were shut out were doomed. Same principle applies to the age of grace in which we now live. When the last soul is saved, the door of mercy will be closed. There is a time limit on the offer of salvation, as Jesus made so ominously clear. Once the owner of the house gets up 
and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading. The gate is open right now. The fact that you are listening to this sermon today means that you can respond if you wish. But once Jesus returns, or if you die before he comes back, and your body is no more, so will the opportunity be no more. Hebrews 9.27 punctuates this. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Today you are alive. Jesus is not returned, but he is about to. Therefore the door is still open, though it will not always be. 2 Corinthians 6.2, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you do not know Christ, call out to him today. Verses 26 and 27. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Jesus warned that it wasn't enough to know something of Jesus and to have some association with him. He had to recognize them. Of course, Jesus knew them in a sense. He knew who they were and knew about their life, yet he did not know them in a sense of relationship. Two things kept them out of the kingdom. First, they had no personal relationship with the master. I don't know you or where you were from is a total denial of a personal relationship. Despite the fact that they are arguing here, well, well, we, we, we ate and we drank with you and you taught in our streets. Well, none of the crowd could persuade Christ to say that their superficial knowledge had established a relationship. They were strangers. And some today may argue that they've eaten and they've drunk with Christ at the Lord's table and they have heard the word preached in his church or they were baptized or they walked down an aisle at the church or they prayed a prayer. That's all very good. But it does not establish a relationship. Many who have experienced all this are going to hear him say, I don't know you or where you are from. Even engaging in ministry doesn't prove relationship. There's probably going to be preachers who have ministered to thousands. Probably going to be Sunday school teachers, Awana workers, who have pointed many little ones to Christ. 
There may be missionaries who've been held up as paragons of sacrifice. Listen, only a vital union with Christ through real faith will save. So the burning question is, does Jesus know you? Are you in authentic relationship with him? Two things kept them out of the kingdom. First, they had no personal relationship with a master. And second, they did not turn away from evil. Will Christ say to you, away from me, you evildoer? Have you allowed Christ to come in and make changes from the inside out? Are you letting him clean up your life? Verse 28. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Weeping indicates sorrow. Gnashing of teeth speaks of a fierce rage. That place, here in verse 28, is nothing less than eternal torment in a place separated from God's mercy. Notice that Jesus referred to it as a specific place. It is hell. It is a literal place that Jesus believed in. Many of those that Jesus spoke to, the Israelites, would be in that place and cast out of their expected kingdom, the glorified Israel. They will see their beloved Jewish heroes, but they will be excluded and cast into the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. As I've already mentioned, these remarks that Jesus was making were probably the most shocking things that anyone could ever say to them. Most of them assumed that because they were physically related to Abraham, they would naturally enter into the promised kingdom. But there was even more. And in truth, Jesus' next words were far more revolutionary. In fact, devastating. To those who assumed that only the Jewish nation would be involved in the kingdom. Jesus explained that Gentiles would be added into the kingdom in place of Jewish people. Verse 29. And people will come from the east and the west and from the north and from the south and recline at table 
in the kingdom of God. Now, people coming from the four corners of the world represent various population groups of Gentiles. Unbelieving Israel will be cast out, but believing Gentiles are going to be sitting down with their national heroes and the redeemed house of Israel. Because of all these Gentiles, because they belong to Christ, they are in Paul's words, Abraham's seeds, and heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3.29. And they will not only be there, but they are going to be joyously feasting Jews in Jesus' day believed that Gentiles were inferior to them. And this is why Jesus spoke the words here in our final verse, verse 30. And behold, some are last who will be first. And some are first who will be last. The Jewish people considered themselves to be first in every way but they will be last. That is, they will be left out of the kingdom. In contrast, some Gentiles considered last would be in the kingdom and would really be first in importance. The gospel, the good news of salvation, is for all people, both Jews and Gentiles. And Christ's words teach us that the kingdom is narrower than his Jewish hearers even thought. Because they assumed that all Israel would automatically be included. But Jesus said that many of them would not make it through the narrow door. Now, here's the ultimate beauty. The narrowness of the kingdom has created a kingdom that is broader than we ever thought. It's broader because you don't have to be born into it. In fact, you're not born physically by your family into it. It's broader. You see, there is hope for a Korean girl in a family of Buddhists. It's broader because there is hope for a Catholic boy who has been brought up to believe that he was born as a Christian and is therefore saved. There is hope for anyone who thinks that they can earn their salvation by being good enough. They're going to need to struggle through and come to trust that faith in Jesus Christ alone will save them but there is hope. There is hope for every shade of suburbanite and every city dweller. The narrow way right now is wide open to all, but it won't always be 
Have you entered it? If not, Jesus says, strive. Make every effort. Put away those things that you've been taught that is not what the Bible teaches. So that you can put your faith in Jesus alone and enter the narrow door. The Spanish composer Manuel de Falla was notorious for not answering his mail. When he heard that a friend had died, the composer said, What a pity! He died before I answered his letter, which he sent me five years ago. When sinners procrastinate in answering God's invitation to his feast, they are thrust out of the joys of the kingdom and are punished with weeping and gnashing of teeth. What a sad picture of people who who will be overwhelmed with regret because they see how foolish they were to delay. One of the agonies of hell will be the remembrance of the opportunities wasted. Don't let that be you. God's anger is filled with grace. But his mercy has limits. If you have never responded to his invitation, today is the day. His mercy has limits. The door will close. Would you pray today, as you are hearing me right now, if you have never invited Jesus into your life, if you have never said, Jesus, I trust you took my punishment, I'm a sinner. I deserve hell. But you're offering me the free gift by believing that Jesus has taken all of my punishment. If you've never, ever started down that road of faith, do it today. Express your faith through a simple prayer. I'll close us with a, a prayer right now. You might want to pray it with me. And invite Jesus into your life to make changes within you. And to have a relationship, a personal relationship with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me, a sinner. I accept the free gift by believing what Jesus has done on the cross for my sin is the only payment that you accept. Thank you for such grace Deepen my faith. Come into my life.
Jesus, make me the kind of person you want me to be. Your friend. One who wants to please and honor you. Change me from the inside out. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, this is Dr. Hoffman. It is our hope at Living Water that this message has encouraged and deepened your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Our sermons are intended to be a free gift to any listener. But at the same time, I thought that I would let our need be known. Living Water, Lapine, is a church that is located in a rural area of central Oregon, ministering to a poverty-stricken community. If God has blessed you through this message, and you have already given to your own local church, If you sense that God would have you help our ministry with a financial gift, you can find out how to do that at our website. It is www.livingwateroflapine.com Thank you for listening.